<laughs> Life sometimes, right? So last week, you, you opened the book of Philippians, and, and Elizabeth talked about our theme of pressing on, and that idea of, of pushing forward, of um, looking ahead, and not just at even your surroundings, but, but looking forward. Um, and the, this idea and, and this concept, even though it's just in that, well, it's in two different verses later in the book of Philippians, there's still that idea as we carry through the whole book. It is one of the themes of the book. Um, there are several that we will see as we go through. Um, but, but there's four short chapters, and we're going to spend the next, what, eight months? in four chapters of scripture. Um, and so I, I, yeah. It is, the book of Philippians is a letter that is written by one of the leading spiritual teachers of the day. And so as we dig into the book of Philippians, I want us to think about being one of the Philippians that received this letter. It is the number one teacher of the Bible of the time, and he is writing a letter to you. They would have been thrilled, but we should also be thrilled because he didn't just write it to the Philippians, he wrote it to us as well. And so as we studied one of these letters um, of, that Paul wrote, we, we want to think about it as not just, even though we're going to look at the context of who they were, what they were doing, where they were located, why he would have said this to them, we want to remember the whole time that he's, it's us too. And so it can be very tempting to pass over these first two verses of the book. It's easy to look at it as, dear so-and-so, and sincerely me, and move on. But there are important concepts in just these words that we don't want to miss. So put yourself in the position of the early readers, but also remember it's not just to them, it's to you as well, because God still speaks through his word to each of us today. Now the introduction to um, letters in the first century commonly contained three elements. There was the identification of the writers, the identification of the readers, and a greeting. And so we're going to just jump right in and look at these three things um, in these first two verses of Philippians. So someone uh, needs to read Philippians 1, 1 and 2. So who, I said it identified the writers, who were the writers of this letter? Paul and Timothy. And you can, if you want to, you've got that at a glance chart. I think mine are the same pages as yours, but I don't know which version I printed. So mine's page three. Um, if you want to write the author on there, you go right ahead and write the authors on there as Paul and Timothy. Um, 
But when we see Paul's name listed here first, you know, some people could look at that and see it as prideful. Uh, but this is a, a typical introduction to a letter. Like I said, they, the introduction always contained those same three elements. And so this is, this is normal for them, even though when we write a letter, we put our names at the end. This was normal to be the very first word of the book was who it was from, or of the letter was who it was from. So obviously we want to ask ourselves the question, who is Paul? And Paul was a missionary, a church planter, formerly Saul, the persecutor of the church. He was an evangelist and teacher. He wrote 13 epistles that are in our Bible. We've talked about Paul before when we learned about Romans. We're going to talk about him some more and his background as we continue through the book and just see some of the aspects of his life. And since we're um, doing eight months on four chapters, I'm going to reserve some of that for later. Um, but so we will come back to more about Paul. But Paul is the primary author of this book. So clearly we attribute this book to Paul. So why would Paul include Timothy here as an author? He could have been the scribe. It's entirely possible. Probably to be introducing the people at the church in Philippi to Timothy as his understudy, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, probably trying to give credibility to Timothy in a lot of ways as an introduction and, um, and credibility, things like that. Timothy was Paul's travel assistant, companion, supporter. Um, it would have been very much like Marta hinted at, a, a mentor-mentee relationship. But Timothy was also a partner in prayer and, and a huge encourager of Paul. We don't yeah, that's entirely possible because that thorn in the flesh would have been uh, in existence at this time. And so Timothy would have been carrying a lot of the weight, both literally and uh, spiritually, uh, on some of these things with with Paul. Nancy. Um, Timothy did not. We'll get to who delivers the letter. Chapter four, I think it's in chapter four and we will talk about them. Um, so Timothy, what we, um, what we know about Timothy well, we will talk more about Timothy in uh, February, but to give us some context, I do want us to look at Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
So this was early in Paul's uh, second missionary journey. And he, he shows up and he meets Timothy in his hometown. What are some of the things we learn about Timothy from that? What do we know about his mother? She was Jewish. What about his father? He was Greek. He had a good reputation. And then it said something else in there. It said that he was uncircumcised until he joined Paul. At, or it says he was uncircumcised. I'm adding until he joined Paul. Um, Paul was the one that actually circumcised him. He was not, he was raised by a Jewish mother, but also that Greek father. And the Greek father said, no, he can't be circumcised uh, until Paul came along and, and took Timothy under his wing, circumcised him at that point in time. Just because he wasn't circumcised does not mean he did not know the Jewish faith, did not know um, the, the Christian faith at that, at, as much as he could at that point in time. Um, he had a good reputation. He, he would have been involved. It was just that Greek father, um, and, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, I think I said February, right? Um, but Paul, in, including Timothy here, he's, he's showing that Timothy is with him. He's showing respect for Timothy. And if we flip over to Philippians 2.19, and I don't, did I hand that one out to anybody? I didn't think I did. Um, it says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. And so he is, in fact, preparing Timothy to come to the Philippian church. And so by giving him credit in this letter, he's also saying these things I'm saying but so is Timothy who's going to come to you because I can't. Um, and so we all need a Timothy in our lives in reality. We need somebody who, who can come alongside us and support us and be with us and serve with us. Oh. Made page scroll up. There we go. So it says Paul and Timothy, and then it says what? How does Paul describe himself and Timothy here? Servants of Christ Jesus. Now what's interesting here is that word servants is, is the Greek word doulos. Doulos means it's not just servant, it means slave. So some translations will actually use the word slave and they are probably a little more get that picture across of what Timothy's, I mean what Paul is trying to say here. Because in, in eight of his epistles, eight of his, Paul refers to himself as an apostle, not a servant or a slave. But Paul didn't need to remind the Philippians of his credentials. Right? So he took the stance that Moses and Joshua, David and Samuel did as labeling themselves as servants. It's an expression of submission to authority. And the reason that it might even be better to think about it as slave instead of just servant. Uh, slavery was common in this era and in particular in Roman cities of which Philippians was one. Um, and the slave is completely owned by his master. 
They did not have a life of their own. They owned nothing. And this is the part that, that I think slave is a better term. They were entirely dependent on their master for all their needs. They owned nothing. They couldn't even feed themselves without the master giving them food. Right? So when you think about Paul and Timothy, and they say, he says, slaves of Christ Jesus. I know it says servants. I'm using my word, slaves. That gives us this picture of Paul seeing himself as completely dependent on Jesus while serving Jesus and seeking to do everything in his life to please Jesus. But this wasn't a restrictive thing for Paul. This was a privilege and a joy, and we're going to see that throughout the book, that, that Paul isn't saying this is a terrible thing. He's saying this is the thing. Um, because it, um, Stephen Lawson says, in being chosen to serve the Lord, we have a high calling to a lowly position. And that's what Paul understood. So we know the authors. Who were the recipients of this letter? The saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Who else? Overseers and deacons. Now, Paul can sometimes be very wordy with long run-on sentences. Let's be honest here. It's not just sometimes. It's a lot of times. He can be really wordy. But he's also very intentional about his choice of words. So Paul used the word saint. Did anyone happen to look up saint this week? What does saint mean? It means holy one, sanctified, set apart. But they are not called saints because of their religious rituals. It's not like the Catholic saints that, that the Roman Catholics go and pray to because they're seen as higher or more spiritual because of the things they did in life or after life. But it is a word that Paul uses often. So to be a saint means that by the operation of grace, a Christian no longer lives a life of pursuing sin in the evil world system and instead is pursuing moral purity. That was also Stephen Lawson. I should have said that at the beginning. Saints are set apart by God from the old life of sin, and they are engaged in a new life of purity. It is a status, but it's also a responsibility. And so he's writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, all those who are set apart. But then he particularly calls out the overseers and the deacons. Some translations for overseers will use the word bishops. Um, in Greek, it is episkopos, one who oversees. Uh, it was common usage in the Greek language for political leaders, military leaders, and religious leaders. Uh, and in the New Testament, it appears to be interchangeable with the word elders. Now, at this point in church history, it doesn't necessarily refer to a specific office. 
That won't happen for a few more years, um, but it's just sort of a designation of the order of the church. Um, you know, Philippi was a Roman city. It would have had Roman customs, um, and so they, they would have known this word to mean leaders, and they would have had leaders uh, within the church, they may just not have been like a title. It wouldn't have been like we think about Pastor Matt or Pastor Jonathan, even though they are the leaders of our church. It wouldn't have necessarily been that specific in, in his context at this point in time. In 1 Timothy 3, uh, which was written five or so years later, the, these roles are described, uh, and so it's possible that at this point in time it was an emerging role, but it was not a specific role yet, not a specific office yet. But they still would have been leaders of some sort. Um, and if you're interested in looking at some of those later descriptions of what this role of overseer or elder had, uh, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, we're not going to read them today, but if you're interested. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, and Titus 1, 5. Talks about the, um, the, the church role of overseer or elder. First Timothy 3, 2 through 5. Sorry, I had to find it on my page again. And then we come to deacons. Deacons is a second role in the church. Um, and I have appreciated the stance that Mount Calvary Church now has on deacons, seeing them more as the servants of the church. Um, because that's what the word deacon actually means, is servant. So they are the ones that are, are um, serving this vital role of implementing the ministries of the church. A lot of times, these deacons are the ones facilitating the behind-the-scenes things. Because nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that deacons need to have any sort of, of teaching or preaching requirement. Elders and overseers do, but deacons do not. Deacons act in service to the church. Um, deacons did exist prior to the writing of this letter. So if we look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, 
Parmenius and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. And so these were the first deacons of the Christian church. And what is it that they were tasked with? Feeding the widows, making sure that the widows had food. It was so that they could serve while others were tasked with teaching and leading responsibilities. And so, so these are the literally the servants of the church. Um, and they would have had or likely would have had deacons at this point in time in church as an, an actual role. And so all these saints are where? Philippi. Yeah, Philippi is located in the northeast section of the Roman province of Macedonia. All that to say it is now modern-day Greece. Uh, they would have been about 800 miles from Rome. And I think the location is on your at-a-glance chart again, isn't it? Nope, it's not. It should have been, but it's not. Um, 800 miles from Rome, but it, more importantly, it was about 10 miles from the seaport of Neapolis. And so it was a strategic city. Uh, it was actually founded because of the amounts of bronze and gold that were in the area. Um, and so it, it was a city that connected Macedonia or Greece to Asia with respect to commerce. And so despite that distance from Rome, right, that 800 miles, it was still a Roman colony and was often referred to as Little Rome because in many ways it was a, a small-scale reproduction of Rome. Uh, the city was founded in 360 BC, then conquered by Philip of Macedon, hence the name Philippi. Uh, it was settled there, like I said, because of gold and, oh, I said bronze, didn't I? I meant copper. I knew what I meant. Bronze and copper in that area. Then it was seized um, under, uh, in 168 BC, it, it be became a Roman city. And in 31 BC, it was given the status of a Roman colony. And so the Roman influence was extremely strong in, in Philippi. So this city, because of this being a Roman colony, um, being little Rome, it was a military outpost. But they were allowed to be uh, Roman citizens. This, the citizens of the city of Philippi could be Roman citizens. And that brought legal and social benefits. They were excused from certain types of military service. They paid less in taxes. Um, they and they have had, but they but they have temples to Apollo and Artemis. It was a very Roman city, not just in culture but also in spiritual beliefs. But interestingly, they spoke Latin instead of Greece 
in the city because it was so Roman, even though it was um, in the area where everyone else spoke Greek, they spoke, uh, spoke Latin. And so Paul first visited Philippi in AD 51, and this is in Acts 16, 11 through 40. We're not going to read that whole passage. But I would recommend you look at it this week just to give you an idea of the city, of Paul's experience in the city. But we are going to look at a couple of pieces of that passage. So first, Acts 16, 11 through 15. And so this passage is the beginning of the church in Philippi. This was during Paul's second missionary journey. And at this point in time, the city of Philippi had no Jewish synagogue, right? Roman city, temple to Artemis, temple to Apollo, no Jewish synagogue. And so what that means is there were less than 10 Jewish men in the city. Because if you had 10 men, then you needed to have a synagogue. That was, that was the, the rule of the time. And so there were less than 10 men, so those men could not meet and gather together to pray. But the women were allowed to meet together without a synagogue. And so coming, the, the way that Paul's standard pattern was, is he would go to the synagogue. Well, there was no synagogue, so he went here to the, to the river where these ladies were meeting and praying together because that was as close to a synagogue as the city of Philippi had. So that's where he went to try to start his ministry in the area. And who did he meet there? Lydia. Lydia became the first of Paul's converts in the city and later became the host of the first church in the city. They ended up meeting in her home. And then Paul and Silas, and we carry on through the passage, Paul and Silas cast an evil spirit out of a slave girl, and that landed them in prison. Interesting story. Take the time to read it this week. Um, but that leads us to uh, Acts 16, 25 through 34. Did I give that one to somebody? I may not have, and that's okay. So in that one, Paul and Silas are in prison. This is a, another familiar story. There's an earthquake, but no one leaves the jail despite the doors being open. And so then the jailer comes in and he's like, the doors are open, the prisoners must have escaped, and he's ready to fall on his sword. And Paul stops him and says, no, no, we're all here. Don't kill yourself. We're here. We stayed. And because of that, 
Paul has converted someone else to join the church. It's the jailer and his whole household. Now, there is no record of Paul being in Philippi after Acts 16, but they did continue to support him. And so all of that was one verse in the book. Again, words are important. But then as we look to verse 2, we see that third aspect of, of what happens in the introduction to all first century letters, and that is a greeting from Paul to the church. And what are the words he uses to greet them? Grace and peace. Grace was a Greek greeting. Peace was a Jewish one. And yet Paul makes both of them distinctly Christian by saying, from our God and Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So not just grace and peace, but it's grace and peace from the one whom originated it. When we think about grace, grace truly summarizes the gospel. So in greeting the saints this way, he is wanting to, them to experience a fuller life of grace, a fuller understanding of God, and to know the all-sufficient grace of God in their lives. Um, did I give Philippians 4.23 to someone? Perfect. So that's the last verse of the book. So we look at his greeting and we look at his salutation and grace is what bookends the book of Philippians. It's, it's the start and the stop of his letter. And then he says peace, peace not with God, because they already have that, but a peace from God. Paul wants them to have a personal experience of the supernatural peace within their souls. It is the quiet calm in the midst of life's raging storms. It is knowing God is in control and that Romans 8.28 is still in the Bible. But there's no peace without first having grace. Grace is the root and peace is the fruit. And so Paul highlights grace and peace, but then he highlights that both come from God the Father and the Son. So here he is affirming the deity of Christ while also highlighting the fatherhood of God. And I'm going to close us with Stephen Lawson's description of this. He says, the experience of this grace and peace does not happen automatically. We must read and study the word of God. We must implement its truths. We must set our minds on things above, not on things of earth. We must worship God before his throne of grace. We must pray and cast our burdens upon him. We must live in close fellowship with other believers. We must serve one another as we carry out our Christian duties. As we do, God abundantly supplies his grace and peace to our souls. And now you are dismissed to your small groups.